Welcome to Enroute to Success, where we have raw, vulnerable conversations between Fitz DeSanto, Sam Boyer, and many talented individuals, unraveling the truths and principles of people's experiences, methods to grow, and discovering how to live a fulfilling lifestyle. Buckle up, the journey begins now. Welcome back, guys, for our second part with Jason Youngblood. We are focusing on resiliency, and we're going to be talking about why should employer groups care about their behavioral well-being. Jason, yeah, thank you for staying with us in this part. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me back. Always smiling. So my next question here is like, why should employer groups, people managers, or even leadership teams care about their behavioral well-being as a company? Yeah. Well, as we discussed in the last, um, our, our last discussion, when I started this work 10 years ago, I used to go out and sit with employer groups, big and small, big national companies that you would recognize down to the smallest um, organizations. And, you know, 10 years ago, people were not talking about behavioral health and well-being. Overall, when you look at the money that companies invest uh, in their health benefits, and they 80% of uh, organizations pay their own claims, or we call them self-insured, maybe around 5% of that goes to behavioral health. The rest of it goes to medical and a lot on pharmacy costs. So the focus wasn't there from a dollar's perspective, but that has gone up year over year. And so has our understanding of the impact of behavioral health and well-being uh, and how that behavioral health and well-being in an individual impacts their overall health. And so just going to break it down uh, for you with some numbers. Today, behavioral health issues, and that could include mental health or substance use disorder, cost the United States $444 billion, so billion with a B dollars in um, costs, medical costs, uh, lost productivity, and uh, other costs associated to um, organizations. That is a number that most people cannot wrap their brains around. But what if I said to you, um, Fitz and Sam, one out of four people that you know will suffer with a behavioral health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. One out of four people um, of those one out of four people that you know that have behavioral health issues in their lifetime, only four out of 10 of them will ever get care. Mm. To me, that's astonishing. What if I said to you, only four out of 10 people with heart disease that you know will ever get uh, care for their heart condition or one out of or four out of 10 people with oncology issues? That is shocking. And so we know that of uh, one out of four people with behavioral conditions, about a third of them will have a chronic medical condition as well. So they might have anxiety or depression. They may have substance use issues as well, but they probably are also going to have heart issues or diabetes or other types of medical conditions. And we know that that group who has both medical and behavioral issues, they are two to three times more costly every year than the person who is lucky enough to only have a medical condition. So as we look at spend and who's driving spend and who has the most catastrophic claims from a medical perspective, we, we know who it is. We know it's people with both medical and behavioral issues. They're not just more expensive. They're also, the quality of their life isn't as high. They're missing more work. They're not as quite as productive. They're not taking as good of care of their family, not as present for them. And here's the last statistic I'm going to like throw out at you that just is amazing to me and helps fuel my mission. When you take people with both a medical issue and a behavioral issue and you look at them longitudinally uh, and you look at people with chronic illness, 
they divide it into two groups, people who get help for their behavioral health conditions and people who do not. What they find is people who get help for their behavioral health conditions on average live 25 years longer. Mm. That's significant. That is significant. So we have gotten much more clear around the impact of behavioral health and well-being on overall well-being, on cost, on quality of life, and even down to life expectancy. And I will tell you, employer groups across the country are waking up and they're asking for help. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about that personally. Ooh, man, I'm about to fall Ooh. off my chair with all this interesting, <laughs> Jason. And many, sorry. I know I threw a lot of numbers out. I, I threw a lot of numbers out. I apologize. No, but this is so insightful. I mean, Sam, did you know that? I mean, I had no idea. Not a, literally not a clue. And I think to your point, Jason, the most surprising one is the last one that people who get help with that 25 years longer. That's that's an entire lifetime <laughs> of additional life. That's insane mm-hmm. to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a topic that everybody's probably thinking in their head. Sorry, Chili, just knock off the light. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, for me, I was just thinking about it too. And it's probably a sensitive topic. If you could give us a high overview on how COVID have affected behavioral health in terms yeah. of those well, numbers and also the well-being of a person. How, has that, how, how does that tie into to that? Yeah, well, I think no surprise. I mean, COVID has been very challenging for all of us this past year. Um, It has challenged many of us to our core, but we have seen a great increase uh, in people who are reporting problems related to anxiety. We've seen a significant increase in individuals who have problems with depression. We've seen suicide attempts go up uh, within the last year. Um, And there was a recent study by alcohol.org that suggests that 25% of workers working at home are actually uh, using substances or drinking during the workday. So it has been a very, very challenging year. I'm sure that's not a surprise to anybody, Um, but we have seen the demand out there across our book of business for behavioral health services rise um, in ways that it has never risen before. And so uh, people need the help and I'm happy to see people taking advantage, but you're right, it has been a challenging year. It's it's just, um, these aren't statistics that I was aware of and. I can't imagine the uh, that impact, like you were saying, I guess people admitting to using substances throughout the day while they're working, like, because that's going to be potentially an ongoing effect, even after COVID is, you know, subsided, and then things return to back to whatever normal it is, there's always going to be that hybrid environment now. So I wonder how much of the blurred lines we're going to continue to see, but you just kind of sparked a whole other <laughs> train of thought. I didn't even know that that was something that people were I guess we could track or that they were had statistics around those super eye opening. And so I think one of the things that we've done, not only, I mean, we've looked at ways to how do we get people connected to care? Um, you know, when I started as a clinician, people used to have to call a receptionist, make an appointment, drive across town, come in, then come into my office and see me. And uh, what if I look like their, their husband or their father-in-law probably not going to like me and, and leave. And so they'd have to try do that all over again. Um, we've redefined the way people get care, um, even from just apps on phones to uh, being able to do asynchronous texting with therapists and things like that. So that has been a silver lining that has come out of COVID, um, I think, in the industry. And again, getting more than that four out of 10 into treatment, we have new ways to get people into care, which I think is really exciting that are going to stick around. Uh, we know now that the vast majority of our membership is seeking their uh, outpatient behavioral care uh, virtually now, like 
in Zoom sessions like we are, which is really cool. But one of the things that we focused on this year was resilience. And resilience is defined as our ability to recover from challenges. And so we've all had challenges. Universally, globally, everyone has been challenged. And so Cigna partnered uh, with some research partners and we did a study um, and we uh, did 17,000, we got 17,000 respondents to the survey. And it really gave us some insights um, that we hoped we could help our clients utilize and turn it into actionable items related to resilience. As a clinician, when I was seeing people face to face, I recognized that some people seem to be naturally better at responding to challenges than others. And I, that always fascinated me as to what was it about some people or their community or their family members that made them more resilient. And so I think this study for me has been um, a pretty interesting thing, some pretty interesting insights. I think the first thing we found about resilient resilience is that it changes over the course of people's lifetime. We're born naturally resilient. Children are the most resilient around us. They tend to bounce back. However, that drops off around middle school. Does that surprise either of you? I mean, who can say middle school was the the best years of their life? Um, So it starts to drop off sadly around middle school. And Sam, heads up to you, it really tanks uh, in the 18 to 23 year olds. Um, So 18 to 23 year olds have the lowest resilience, but good news, it's starting to climb back up. And by the time you reach your 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, it starts to get back up uh, close to the level. And so um, I find that fascinating. We're born resilient. We learn some bad habits. Hmm. And then you spend the rest of your life unlearning it and becoming wise and get more resilient resilient as that happens. Yeah. I didn't mean to pick on you uh, and your age, Sam. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a quarter of a century now, so maybe I'm out of the thick of it. <laughs> no, I mean, I was just going to, it was a great segue too, Jason, because I, I'm glad you, you touch on that because in the resilience side, I was going to say, I mean, my work ethics are completely different from when I was 20 to now that I'm in my thirties. It's just, so it, it does make sense on what you were saying in relates to res- like kids are super resilient, but kind of like by the middle age is almost like middle school. You kind of just wiggle like, oh, you know, we start getting lazy and, you know, so that, that makes sense. Thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing about this that I love, you know, especially we've talked about the connection between the mind and the body and my love of fitness and use of fitness to help people be at their optimal functioning we can build our resilience just like you can build your muscle. Um, just like you can get better at cardio running. The more you practice, the more you focus on it, the more resilient you can become. And for me, that's the enduring message of resilience. Your resilience may be challenged today, but it doesn't matter what age you are. You can focus on it and you can improve. You can be an example to others and that can, that can grow and it make a difference um, in your day-to-day life. I think that's a, a nice positive message. That's why... I love talking about it. Absolutely. It's just, it's that time that you put in too, right? Like our recent episode, time. (laughs) (laughs) And you spend so much time being resilient. You'll be really good at it, right? Because you put in all that time. And Boyer, if you have anything, I'll I'll pass it on to you if you have anything. Yeah, I guess just a little side note or question. And there, there may be an answer to this or maybe not. But have, have you seen, I guess, trends with, besides just leveraging using resilience and like working it like a muscle, have you seen what's been beneficial for people? Maybe if they've not been resilient in the past and they've kind of 
figures some things out, what are those specific things? Does it come down to habits or what does it usually fall into mm-hmm. that someone's able to develop it from? Yeah, you know, I think the very first thing is just the level of awareness around resilience and the fact that it the fact that it isn't just fixed in your lifetime, that it does change over your lifespan. So I think building or understanding that and then uh, being able to focus on it, I think the what we've seen, the research has shown, um, people who are most resilient are surrounded by great social support. So they might have a work environment that tends to be uh, cohesive and supportive. They tend to have a good family, like surrounded by family who support them. Um, they're also good at balancing work and life, and they focus on keeping that balance fresh. And guess what? They also exercise and get sleep. So people who focus on people who focus on that mind body connection tend to be more resilient. People who engage in hobbies, uh, outside activities, uh, people who spend time with their families, but also people who spend time alone. Um, I'm feeling that right now that I could use a little alone time, but people who balance those kind of things. And to some degree, I want to say it's almost a little common sense, um, but those factors were found to, uh, and, and people who were the most resilient in the study. But those were the hardest too on some people, right? Like, I mean, Jason, you're touching all our mission here. It's like, I love it. The self-worth, our self-care, you know, all these mm-hmm. things that when you were talking, it's really build someone up. Gratitude, right? Like people that actually grateful for something could could get those strength for being resilient. I guess my next question to that, my follow-up question to, to Sam, like why would employers or managers even pay attention to the resilience of their employees while working for them? Like, is that something that they have to pay attention to? And I mean, does that question make sense? Like, what are the key finding workers for people that has low resilience? Like, how can they improve that in an organization? Sorry, Sam, I didn't mean, to, I was just so excited. I mean, no, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, to answer that question, um, the, uh, the survey results showed there's some good news here that employment status was found to be associated with resilience. And so um, uh, individuals who are full-time employed tended to be most highly resilient. And then it, there's a, a solid line, individuals who are part-time or slightly less resilient, and then individuals who are unemployed were least resilient. So I think the message for organizations, businesses, and people managers Having an employee working part-time or full-time on a team with a mission, really important for individual well-being and resilience. So I think uh, those, I think that was one of the findings that I think is important to call out. I think um, fits to answer your question. When we looked at people in the workforce who had low resilience, what we found about them and how they treated their work, um, they had, in, those individuals with low resilience also had low job satisfaction they had a higher likelihood of turnover. And I think we all know turnover is very costly. They tended to have a lower performance. They also had low professional ambition. Mm. Um, And so they also reported things like uh, weaker relationships with their colleagues, but lower feelings of self-esteem and self-worth. And so why would I as a manager care about resilience in my workforce and my team? I have an organization all of those reasons, all of those reasons. Well, and because I care for the people that work in my organization um, and I want them to be healthy and well, but from an organizational perspective, I know if their resilience is challenged, they're going to have less professional ambition and they're more likely to leave. 
And let's just be honest. I mean, I'm a worker too. I've been through uh, this last year of COVID myself. I have been, had my own resilience challenges within this last year. Sure. And all of those things who have applied, have applied to me at one point or another. Um, and I've really had to work hard to manage through those things. So I, I do think managers are, are paying attention. I think they genuinely care and they care because they're good people um, and because they want healthy functional teams as well. Sam, I will shut up. It's yours. <laughs> no, I, I don't even know that I have to dig too much deeper there because it's important. And then you just shared why. And I think that the more, like you said, the more awareness it's brought as to all of the effects that something like this has resilience from, you know, everyone in the organization should care about this, even if they're, you know, let's be honest, maybe they're not so much focused on the people aspect from a number standpoint, this is super huge. And then on the flip side of that, from the human centered focus, even more important. <laughs> so it's just really, this has been super eye opening. The factors and all these statistics that you've shared so far, Jason, I think I hope other people, if they are you know, leaders in organizations, they are taking this and if they're not already looking into it, to start looking into it for their own people around them or their own lives, because it's really, it's really important thing. Yeah, one, absolutely. One quick question for you, Jason. I'm sure I know the answer, but I want to know. And do you encourage your team members to have their own resilience time in relates to, hey, you know, if you like running or if you like to do this, like go ahead and do that and come back. Like, how do you how do you manage that in promoting it to your yeah um, within your yeah life? yeah. So personally, um, you know, I, I live by and work by the golden rule. I treat my team the way that I want to be treated. So I definitely encourage. I also, um, my team tends to be, they're more creative and empathetic based on our, our clinical nature and the clinical nature of our role. Our role is to relate to others and form relationships. And you can't do that if you're worn down. Mm-hmm. And so I think in order to be successful, you have to be focused and centered. And so I absolutely have encouraged. So, and just, you know, I think what I've heard out there and as I read and listen to podcasts and things like that, you know, what managers are doing and what I've been doing is I've been having a lot more flexibility with my team. You know, if they want to work very odd hours, I don't care. Just get your job done, meet the client's needs, get your work done, respond to the emails, just get it done, but do it in your time. That might be completely different than it was. Yeah. I have a team member who's training for a marathon and he does some long runs in the middle of the day, works in the evening. That's just fine. Um, I always encourage my team members to, you know, take good care of themselves. I don't get too invasive. I encourage healthy eating and hydration is so important, but definitely exercise. I focus on mind body with them. Um, I think we have to practice what we preach for sure. Yeah. Jason, why can't all leaders be like you? Like (laughs) feeling feeling so good. You know, I'm so empowered just like talking to you. Um, Sam, I don't know if you have any other thoughts or pressing questions before we wind down and as we close out. I guess more along terms of just kind of out of curiosity, where have you developed this like really unique way of just like adapting and being willing to like experiment with different things with your team or in your life in general? It seems like you've just got a really good like open mindset around just being willing to shift where the changes need to be made. I'm just kind of curious where, where you feel that comes Jerry, from. Jerry, yeah. Hmm, I don't know. That's a great question. I think I am um, naturally a, an inquisitive, curious kind of person. I, I'm a problem solver, but I think I would say I've always had high levels of empathy and I'm a pretty good listener when I can focus and listen. And so um, I think 
you learn to understand where to shift direction by really listening and understanding what others need around you. So um, I, I'll, 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 I'm going to contribute it to empathy and listening. People aren't going to follow um, if you're not listening and, and leading in the right direction. So, I, you know, honestly, I just kind of pause and look at the world around me and think thoughtfully around it. I follow my gut, as we've talked about, and, and so many things. But, you know, I, I, I think it's uh, empathy and listening that really kind of drive my leadership style. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know there was no, <laughs> there's no real right or wrong answer to it. So it's just curious to get your perspective, but no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You're such a, you're a good listener, Jason. And I could attest to that too. So I, I call all our conversations a therapy session. So, um, <laughs> I feel that. and great empowerment, but as we close down, Jason, what are your thoughts coming from your heart that actually for whatever they do, leaders, parents, or whatsoever, that wants to express that resiliency through their child, through their workforce, through an organization? It's something that really I know you'll be able to shed some light to us and where to start because our listeners are probably mm-hmm. thinking, hey, you know, that sounds really good. But right now, how do I how do I do that? How do I start? And how how can I bring that same resiliency that Jason has in his organization? Um, it's a, a great question, and I think that the way that I re- would respond to that, um, you have to lead by example, and you have to be a living, preaching example of what you want. Whether it's your children, whether it's students in the classroom, whether it's your family or friends, or whether it's people who might work for you but you have to lead by example. People are watching. And um, I was just listening to another one of your podcasts yesterday. And um, I think it was Sam who used an analogy that I often use. If you are on an airplane Mm. and they put the, and they talk about the oxygen mask dropping. I remember the first time I flew with one of my children and they said, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And I thought, Oh my God, that is so callous. I would never do that. And then I, it hit me like, Oh, well, if I don't have my oxygen, I'm not going to be able to take care of my little ones. That was an aha moment for me of my ability to lead, whether it's my children, my family, my community, or in my organization, really is dependent upon my ability to take care of myself. And so it's okay to be selfish, a little selfish in taking care of yourself and focusing on your own resilience, um, because you will get a return on investment of that from the people in your life who are watching and listening. So I guess my answer, Fitz, would be put on your oxygen mask um, and then take care of others. So powerful. No, it's simple, yet we tend to forget. Like I said, Jason, you're like our mascot of our podcast <laughs> because it's something that we all, that Sam and I really both believed in. And, and to our listeners, I could joke with Jason with that because we, we've known each other for a while. So no, thank you for uh, referencing the podcast. That's a really good, <laughs> really good guest uh, tactic right there. I like that. No, it's it, everything you said. I, I don't have anything to add because I think I would just echo it, um, knowing how important it is to take care of yourself before others. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. You said it well. Thank you, Jason. It's such a great experience and delight for you to be here with us. It's so one, informative, educational. And our main goal is really to have a how and takeaways for our listeners. And that really was delivered in this episode. And thank I was going to say therapy. Thank you for this therapy session or episode, whatever you want to call it. But as you guys know, we always end our podcast with things that we're grateful for. And I could start that with, 
I'm really grateful for having the energy to be resilient. You know, I was just, I just thought about that while we were talking because sometimes it could be like, for me, I had a rough week last week and for me to be resilient, I was just talking to Sam before this podcast. I was like, <laughs> like everything is just like went off last week, <laughs> but there's one thing that that was good that happened. So it's really hard to be feeling that way or negative if you look at the, the things you're grateful for, because you're really just changing an instant. So I always just focus on that. But for you guys, Jason, what's for you today? I'm just going to go keep it simple. I am uh, very thankful for blue skies. It's a uh, spring out here on the East Coast and we've seen some blue skies and blue skies really help with the mood. And so I had a, a nice run this morning under some blue skies and some sunshine and lifted my spirits and kind of gave me some extra energy to be a little bit more focused and present with uh, the two of you. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick with blue skies. Absolutely. Blair. <laughs> That's I love that Jason. Um, I'm going to go with honestly people like yourself who are willing to take risks because had you not done that multiple times, I think that's the, the one big thing I'm taking away from this both discussions we've had is you've had to take some risks and you've followed through and, and not been afraid to make those shifts when they come. So, and because of that, you're able to be in the situation you are helping a lot of people. And I feel educated now <laughs> just talking to you today. So <laughs> just really grateful for, uh, for you and then people like yourself that are willing to do that. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. And you two are doing very important work with your podcast. You're doing it very well. So I encourage you to keep it up. Keep following your own missions. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate that. And thank you for really taking the time and, and shedding some light through resiliency, because it's one of the things that we're, we're both passionate about. I think all three of us are passionate about it. So I, I love that we're joining forces and collaborating to deliver this goal. So I'll give Sam the floor <laughs> for our contact Perfect. information. <laughs> You're like a pro on this one. So I'll give it to you, buddy. I've, I've done it enough at this point. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so for all the listeners out there, if you want to contact us directly at our email at alohafitsam at gmail.com. On social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Pinterest at Enroute to Success 365. And then individually at Fitz DeSanto or at Sam Boyer on LinkedIn. Sounds good. Spoken like a true DJ, like I always say. All right, guys. Well, let's do our outro. Even small victory is worth worth to be grateful for thank you guys for listening in and we have more episodes coming take care